Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to another episode of the Natural Curiosity Project, and Happy New Year. Here's to 2022 being a much better year for everybody. In this podcast, I talk about things that spark my curiosity, and some of those things are people, people who do what I like to call nonlinear jobs, although actually I think they're really people who have had nonlinear careers, people who have had the curiosity and the courage to follow a passion and then turn it into the work that they do every day. And quite often, they're serial passion seekers, meaning that there isn't one single thing that calls to them. Well, today's guest is no exception. I've known Phil Asmundson for close to 30 years. When we first met, Phil was my customer, and then he became my friend, and today he's still my friend, but now I'm his customer in a rather different way, in fact, in a very funny turn of events that are going to become clear as we chat. So let's get into it. Phil, welcome to the program. You've had a career that has, by anyone's definition, been non-linear. When we met, you worked for Deloitte, running the practice that focuses on technology, media, and telecom companies. But a lot came before that, and a lot came after. Let me start with this. How did you get into auditing? I have had a career that has been all over the place, quite honestly. And and, and it really started from growing up, uh, when my mother, who who was very influential in my life, she was very disciplinarian and kind of towed a very tough line. But one of the things she taught me very early on was that you had to be creative uh, and you had to be curious, you know, and you had to have an imagination that those things were very, very important. Um, And, and she really pushed me in that direction. I was an outdoor kid. I I spent very little time in the house. Uh, Mostly my mother knew I was home because I had dropped my backpack on the back porch, gone somewhere else, but I was somewhere not to be found. And And uh, the way she called me home was she had an air horn. If there was one blast, I had to, I was telling me, get home. And if there were two blasts, it was get home now or you're in serious trouble. But along the lines of creativity, one of the things she did very early on was she got me into things that made me use my hands, things that made me use my fingers. So things like hooking rugs and needle pointing and sewing and knitting things that really required me to develop my small muscles. And, and, and her theory on that was pretty simple. Rosie Greer was a very famous football player uh, when I was growing up, and he did those things. And she said, he's a great athlete, and you're going to find those small muscles are more important than the big muscles. And you know what? She was right. But as I started to get a little older and you know, getting ready to go to college and thinking about what I wanted to do, my mother was very clear. And, and she once said to me when I was talking about our house in Connecticut, she told me, your father and I have a house. You don't have a house. And so when I was getting ready to go to school, she came to me and she took a map and she took a compass, you know, pencil in one end, pointer in the other. 
put the point in our in, in our uh, town of Wilton, Connecticut, and drew a one thousand mile circle. And uh, I said, "What's this?" She goes, "You go anywhere outside that circle, I'll pay for college." So I ended up going to University of Oregon. And when I asked her, "Why do you want me to go more than a thousand miles away?" and she said, "Because that way, I'll always know if you're coming home." I didn't know what to think about that. I kind of thought it was cute and humorous, but as it turned out, it was a great choice for me because I went to the University of Oregon and absolutely loved it. I thrived there, had a great time. Even my my college career, prior to starting to work, was very disjointed and nonlinear uh, because I went as a pre-med student. My grandfather was a surgeon, but uh, I, I enjoyed medicine, but I only made it about a year. And I said, the heck with that. And I ended up going into a dual major of physics and geology. Now, you might be wondering, I got an accounting degree and I worked for Deloitte. How did I do that? Well, the answer is, I always knew I wanted to be in business. I wanted to have a strong business background. I knew I wanted to go to MBA school. But first, I wanted to go hunt for oil. And that was my intent. And unfortunately, in, in uh, the end of my junior year, the oil markets collapsed. And so I had to do something. I realized I had enough accounting uh, uh, credits and I'd always been taking business classes all the time, but I had to take 21 credits in each of the three semesters that we had. We had quarters, I guess we called them, and 15 is the norm. So it was a much bigger load in order to get all the other things I needed. And I managed to get it done, ended up with a BS in accounting. Some people used to laugh at me because, you know, BS accounting. When I got out of school, I, I had a job with one of the big eight accounting firms at that point in time, but I turned it down because I was also a bicycle racer and I went with two friends and we, we cycled across Europe. I, I realized that was the only time I was going to get to do it. Again, feeding this knowledge of, you know, you know, exploration, creativity. I wanted to go experience Europe. I'd never been there. What better way to do it than on the back of the bicycle? And again, had just a wonderful, wonderful time. And, and it finally ended sometime in September and I got home. And I remember I was watching television and Anwar Sadat had just been assassinated. It was like October 1st. And my mother sat down and said, what are you doing? I said, oh my God, Sadat was killed. And she goes, hmm, just so you know, you have 30 days to find a job and get out of my house. And I did. I went, I interviewed with Tush Ross at that time. I got a job and I joined the audit department. A year earlier, I would have never imagined that, but here I was, and now I had to move from there. You know, I spent 33 years there, uh, did all sorts of things there. It was a wonderful career, never got bored because I always had new opportunities. You know, you know, ultimately retired in 2014 at the age of uh, 55 as a vice chairman of, of Deloitte & Touche. Okay, so just to recap, undergrad degrees in geology and physics, a degree in accounting. You were a bicycle racer, of course you were. And then you became an auditor with a big eight accounting firm and ultimately retired from Deloitte at 55 as the vice chair of the firm. Along the way, you essentially created the practice that dealt with telecom, which at the time was one of the most dynamic, chaotic, unpredictable industries on the planet. But you created it by reinventing it. How did you do that? I believe to be successful, you have to constantly be reinventing yourself and, and that you're, you're, you're always seeking new things to do. I remember in my first big uh, meeting I had with everyone where I brought all the functions together. It was out in Denver and we were having a, a big meeting. I got up there and I, I asked a question to the group and I got kind of funny looks. How many of you are outside of your comfort zone 25% of every day? Not a single hand. So I said, okay, how about 50%? And they all looked at me with like, who is this wacko up here on stage? And I just remember I looked at him and I said, am I going in the wrong direction? And I saw every head go up and down until I got down to 10%. Then a few hands went up. 
And I remember I paused for a minute and kind of walked around. I actually turned my back on and kind of walked back, gathered my thoughts. I said, you know, I said, if you want to be in this industry practice, you're going to have to be outside your comfort zone 75% of the time because this is not business as usual. We are taking a bold step in a new direction. We're going to face both market pushback and we're going to face firm pushback. So you've got to be comfortable doing the uncomfortable. And if you can't do that, I don't think you'll be successful here. And then, you know, they kind of quizzed me on something. I think we're about a $250 million practice at the time. They said, well, what are your goals? I said, what goals, you know, what goals do you want to know? Revenue. I said, in three years, be a billion dollar business. And again, I got these looks of rolling eyes. You're crazy. Afterwards, two consulting partners came up and said, I'm on your team. I like you. I like your vision. And I like the challenge. And that's how you succeed in life. You constantly put new challenges in front of you. You won't succeed in all of them. But if you don't put big, hairy, audacious goals out there in front of you, you're always going to be incremental. And this wasn't something that could be incremental. We were not going to be given 20 years to show that this was successful. Because I was moving people around the country, which costs a lot of money. So I wanted to aggregate my people that are, are, are serving tech, media, and telecom in certain offices. You know, logical ones, LA, Silicon Valley, and New York. Every day I, I, I had doubts, but every day I swept them by by the wayside and said, you know, this is this is what I need. Okay, so you worked at Deloitte for 33 years, and then you made a marginally different career shift. A marginally is being very kind. <laughs> I'd say we went in a very different direction. It actually started in 2009. Two things happened in 2009. First, that happened was my wife Kim came to me. It was my 50th birthday that year, and she said, Do you want a party or do you want a trip? So we went down to Argentina and we ended up buying a vineyard. We we got, uh, as I like to say it, we had way too much to drink in an asada and woke up the next morning with a 27 page document saying that we had bought five acres of land down in Argentina. Now, that's not overstated. It was kind of what I call a condominium vineyard. The price we paid included the land, all the infrastructure to be put in place, planting the vines. So, you know, all your trellising, all of your, your, your irrigation systems, all that. And then three years of farming. And it was an absolute not ball, uh, you know, because I looked at it. It's just a hobby. We're just going to do this. And we're going to really just just make family wine and share it with our family and friends. And, and that was our intent, except... In December 2009, I was doing some work on, on a couple of telecom deals. And I, I get an uh, email from my wife telling me she just bought 20 acres in Wilcox, Arizona. And I'm like, what for? Said, we're going to grow grapes there because there's some grape growing there. In fact, that's where about 80% of the grapes are in Arizona. And so we ended up behind that and planting that in 2011 with five varietals of Rome-style grapes and then also Malbec and Petit Sirac. The area in Arizona was remarkably similar to, to Uco Valley in Argentina. Right. I, I remember you telling me after the fact that you and Kim discovered that the regions were more or less equidistant from the equator, which meant that they had the same weather and soil and so on. And having had more than my share of your wine, I'd say it has worked out pretty well. We've had a great time doing this and now have 10 acres in Elgin, Arizona, which is closer to Tucson, so that we have a place for our, our, our winery. And our tasting room, and we also have uh, more more plants there. We grow Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc. It turned into from what I thought would be a little hobby turned into a business. And Kim runs that, but she's done a fantastic job. We always joked when we got involved that we only have a plastic plants in our house because if she gets a plant, it dies within like a day. 
but somehow she has managed to keep about 22,000 vines alive. And uh, it's, it's been a real trip to, to see her do that. So now you're a vintner or an enologist, or as you like to call yourself, a farmer, a title that I have a hard time applying to you, but I get it and I like it. But now you've pivoted again. You're now a published author, having written not one book, but three. And they're very good. I know that when you were younger, you dabbled in writing a bit and you wrote some children's stories about your dog and what it meant for a child to have a pet. But these most recent books were a pretty serious undertaking. What was the genesis of the idea? I came upon a myth, and it was a very obscure myth. In fact, I've only found two references to it ever in, 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 in my searching. And it's the myth of the Tower Tums. It's T-U-A-R-T-U-M-S. And it's a Native American myth that kind of describes these little people of the Valley of the Sun. It tells the, the story of the Tower Tums who these other giants tried to kill, but ultimately Father Son threw a sunball down and killed the giants. And it, 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 it's really there to describe some of the physical features of Arizona. They had a big camel named Beeslaw. Well, it got seared into the ground. That's Camelback Mountain. If you look at the superstitious mountains from a distance, it looks like a ship. They, they had all their golden treasure on the ship, and they were trying to sail it down to uh, uh, the south. And then finally, the Papago Buttes, they always talk about these large screaming faces. Well, those were these things were called the Junipedes, and they got burned into the ground. So I kind of thought about it for a little bit, and I said, you know, what if I made them real? Because the great thing about myths is somebody told them, and, and they have a history. And could they be real? Yeah, it could be. So I spent about six months thinking about the story, and and uh, I actually wrote that what I would have called the back cover. It turned out not to be the back cover, but that scene is still in the book, where Alexa, the heroine, sees this little little man on the side of a hill doing something, and he suddenly lunges off and suddenly is at her feet, and he introduces himself by saying, "Hi, my name is Asa Holenthal, and I'm from the planet Indo." And that scene is still in the first book, and uh, it really kicks off that whole thing. And I just fell in love with this idea of writing this. And so I started writing it um, using real science, and I wrote it at night on airplanes. Uh, I didn't have that much free time, but I did a lot of traveling, just as you do, Steve. And you get a long flight back from China, you get plenty of time in the middle of the night. And I would write sometimes. I'd stop writing for six months. So ultimately, it took me about 10 years to write it. I've got all three books out there now. But I had more fun writing this story yeah, I've read them and I love them. Can you give us a quick synopsis? It's really a sci-fi fantasy. As I said earlier on, it's, it, it really uses real science, actual what happens in the world today to tell this story. Let me interrupt for just a second. Your main character is a young girl named Alexa. She's kind of studious, a little nerdy. Um, most important thing to her is straight A's that she has. Uh, by the way, I came up with that name before Amazon stole it from me for their Alexa. It opens up with the book talking about the fact she wakes up and realizes today is going to be a very difficult day for her mother. And it's going to be difficult because it's the 12th year anniversary of the disappearance of the father, who was kind of an explorer treasure hunter, who was in the mountains around Tucson and just disappeared. No sign, no idea where he went to, no remains, nothing was ever found. Her mother's driving her to school and, 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 and she says, mom, it's okay. You know, I know, you know, this is a tough, tough day. And you know, her mother breaks down and just says, you know, I, I really believe he's still out there, but I miss him so, and, and I'm beginning to give up. And she says, well, I'll tell you all about your father tonight because he was a wonderful man. And she kind of fixates on this word was, but as it turns out, that very next day, 
he suddenly returns. 12 days of the year he disappeared. He has no memory of where he's been. He has no memory of her. Uh, he was in a coma for quite some time. Very weird physiological differences, brainwave activity that's thousands of times faster than normal human activity. When her mother is preparing for him to come home, she starts bringing clothes back from the storage unit with him in there. She's going through it and just kind of laughing at the style of clothes 12 years ago, but she reaches into a pocket and finds a scrap of paper. And she realizes it's a clue because it's dated the day before he disappeared. And it's got a little map on it. It's just how she follows clue after clue after clue. And ultimately it brings her to Aza. It's Taratum from uh, the planet Yandola. He tells her that she, that her father, Jeff, was with him on the planet Yandola, that he was mistakenly taken because he stumbled upon them when they were trying to take something back to the planet, Yandola, that they need to keep their planet alive. Phil, I'm going to stop you there because I don't want you to give away too much of the story. Suffice it to say, folks, that Alexa learns that she's destined to play a critical role in the future of not just the Earth or Yandola, but the universe itself. And one of the things that makes the narrative interesting, to me anyway, is the amount of physics that Phil brings into the story. But Phil, you do it in a way that isn't intimidating. That's what's really cool. Ultimately, what she must do is she must learn the power of the four forces and reunify them back into a supersymmetrical force. These are the actual forces that shape the world we live in. We would not be here without those four forces. And so I bring all the real science into this, as well as other concepts out there that permeate through the books that uh, you know, most people don't think about. It is endless. It's boundless in terms of what is out there. And to be able to write something that could expose adults and, and young adults to this concept of science, to me was this is opening a world they could never have imagined. Science in its purest form is, is indistinguishable from magic, but infinitely more powerful. Kind of rewrote that from Arthur C. Clarke. But I, I truly do believe that. And, and I think uh, that played a big part in why I wrote what I wrote. Let me shift gears for just a minute. You've often talked about the trinity of curiosity, imagination, and creativity. How have those three elements served you throughout your career? You know, and, and you're right. And that's all my mother. My, my mother beat that into me. I had no choice. And because of that, I, I like to create new things. The old saying of you have two choices in life. You can follow a path and you can make a path. As a kid, I probably built 50 miles of trails through the woods. And I would just start in one direction with my little clippers and be cutting things down as I went. And when that air horn would go off, I'd drop the clippers, run back on my path, and the next day I'd be out there making it further. You know, you never know what's over that next hill. And, and you know, that really drove me. And, and to a large extent, you know, as a physics guy, you know, one of my favorite quotes was by Albert Einstein. He said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And so even as an auditor, I looked at things that way. Because I do believe I'm, I'm, I'm a serial inventor. And all because it's being done this way. I always ask the question, why? I mean, any process can be improved, and, and you have to accept that in science. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that a fundamental particle, meaning in physics, something that cannot be broken down into a smaller piece, was the atom. But we now know that there are quarks and gluons and, and, and uptons and all sorts of things like that that make up other things like protons and neutrons. By its very nature, science is always wrong. 
because we're not satisfied that we've really found the end. And to me, you know, having that opportunity to, to, to always say there's a better way. And that's, that was my mantra, whether I was an auditor, I did that with one of my clients. I took my crew up to uh, Vermont. We went to Killington. We all got in the chairlift. We went to the top of the mountain. I gave them all clipboards and pens. And I said, you're going to redesign the audit. And they said, well, we left the work. No, no, you're going to redesign it here. And they said, why here? I said, because if you look around, I think you can see it's either five or seven states from the top of that mountain. You can't be creative inside a four-wall room. You just can't. It's limiting. Here, endless possibilities. I made him sit and go up there two days in a row. It was cold. It was May, and it's pretty cold up there. You know, I get him up there and say, well, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going back down. I'm playing golf. I said, this is your task. I want you to do this. I know how to do this. I, I, I want you to do it. I got to tell you. I don't think I've ever been more proud of a group of people that really believed I had lost my rocker and boy, we knew he was going to flip a gasket sooner or later. And all of a sudden they're up there. They came down and did 10 times more than I thought they could. And I, I couldn't have been more proud of that entire group. They blew me away. And so I kind of approached everything that way. Phil, thanks for being on the show. If you'd like to know more about Phil's Twartum trilogy, and trust me on this, you do, there's a link at the website and a link to Kim and Phil's Deep Sky Vineyard in Arizona. And with that, I think I'm going to have a glass of wine. Thank you, Phil. Cheers. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.